0: Welcome to the Early Career Moves Podcast, the career strategy podcast for BIPOC folks in their 20s and 30s trying to figure out their next career move. I'm your host, Priscilla Weninger bulcha Latinx career coach, former talent recruiter, and human capital management consultant. Each Friday, I'll share an actionable tip to help you on your career change journey so that you can job search with confidence, land amazing job offers, and get on with your life. Let's get started. Hey y'all, how's it going? Happy Thanksgiving for those who celebrate. Um, obviously this holiday has very problematic. Origins, but I do enjoy the time off and the time with family. Typically for Thanksgiving, I head to New Jersey with my husband. We spend time with his family and I get to go in to New York City for a day or something. So by the time you hear this, if you hear it on the day that it drops, I'll be doing that, enjoying time with family. And I hope that you find some time to rest as well. Rest is so important. I hope you are prioritizing resting, relaxing. And doing it intentionally, even if it's just five minutes here, 10 minutes there, getting some sunshine on your face or walking outside. It's something that for me has really helped me in my journey to chill the F out because as a child of immigrants, we don't do that too often. Okay. So, Today we have a special episode. It's not as job search career change related, but it is about career changes. This is an episode that I recorded a couple of years ago. I still have interviews that I have not yet published that every now and then i'll look and dust one off and 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 i'll release one and for this episode i decided to release this very special interview that i had with one of my best friends carol guerrero carol also happened to marry me and my husband And she was literally the best officiant ever. Now everyone wants Carol to marry them. (laughs) But yeah, Carol is one of my best friends. She's an attorney. She works at Wilmer Hale, one of the most prestigious global law firms. She went to Columbia Law School. She went to BU, Boston University, for undergrad. And in between going to BU and going to Columbia Law School, she spent two years in Miami doing Teach for America, and she was my roommate for the first year. So that's how Carol and I met. We met when she was a 21 year old who had just graduated college, and I had just finished my master's of public affairs. I was a little bit older, I'm two years older than her, and we were roommates. We really went through it as a not just roommates, but first year teachers. And we also had lots of fun. We have lots of fond memories, good and bad, (laughs) from our time in Miami. And um, after Teach for America, she moved to Boston, which is where she's from, the Boston area. She moved back home and worked for a nonprofit called Career Collaborative, which is pretty cool, very aligned with the work that I do and then she applied to law school and on this episode she's going to talk about that journey to apply to law school the reason why i think this episode's beneficial whether you're interested in becoming a lawyer or not is we talk about overcoming fear overcoming rejections overcoming self-doubt imposter syndrome to achieve a really big goal and even if you're not trying to go to law school the messages and the themes from this episode apply to any big goal that you have. You know, it might be changing careers and Carol is no stranger to doing that. So excited to share her story with you. I hope this inspires you to be bold and go after your dreams. Okay, everyone today, I am so excited to have Carol Guerrero on the show. So why don't you first kind of start us off by telling us a little bit about your personal background. So what should we know about you before we jump into your story?
1: I identify as a uh, black Dominican woman. I'm from Lynn, Massachusetts, which is a town just north of Boston. Lynn, Massachusetts is a town of mostly immigrants, largely Dominican immigrants, which is where my family's from. Both of my parents immigrated from the Dominican Republic a few years before I was born. And my mom, who is one of eight, has a lot of her extended family in that town. And so I grew up with a lot of cousins and a lot of family around all the time. So I grew up in Lynn and Lynn has okay quality schools, I would say. And then in eighth grade, my mom moved us to Peabody, Massachusetts, which is just six miles north. But the quality of the education there is significantly different than it was in Lynn. So in the eighth grade, and, and most importantly, in high school, I was, you know, in a middle class area where everybody sort of was expected to go to college. And that became less of whether I would go and where I would go once I moved into to that school system.
0: So then when you were deciding to go to college, like what was that process like? Did you have to figure that out completely on your own?
1: I really did. I Like I said, I have a lot of cousins, and some of them had gone to college, but had worked full-time or, or gone into the workforce and then gone back to college part-time, and nobody had really gone to a four-year school and lived there, which is what I really wanted to do. And so I was really figuring it out on my own. I remember that there was this college prep class that you could take in high school, and I found out about it late, and I tried to sign up, and I knocked on the door for the teacher's class and she like took one look at me, like looked me up and down and was like, my class is full. <laughs> and so wow. I turned around and went back to the guidance counselor and tried to figure it out on my own. And My biggest fear was that I would apply, I'd get in somewhere, and then I wouldn't be able to pay for it. And so I was both really invested in the application process, but also trying to figure out what scholarships I could apply for and how I was going to make it happen. And so... It was very much a solo journey and I had really low expectations for myself. You know, I was a good student and I had good grades and thinking back, I definitely was a good candidate at any number of schools, but you know, I wasn't ready to leave Massachusetts. I applied to six schools all in the area. And none of them were, I didn't apply to Harvard, I didn't apply to Dartmouth, I didn't apply to Williams or Wellesley. And I just thought, okay, I'm gonna try for these six schools. And if I can get into any one of these, like, I'll be really lucky and really happy. And so so yeah, I figured out my uh, by myself, I ended up at Boston University, which was great. But thinking back, there are a lot of things that I would have done differently.
0: Yeah. So I really want to kind of touch on that. Because I felt the same way in college, you know, other than Wellesley, a lot of my schools were schools that felt a little safer to me. I didn't apply to any Ivy Leagues Mm -hmm. either. And it's interesting because now, you know, so much time has gone by and we look back at this time and we're like, man, we really could have done a lot more or we could have at least set that bar a little higher. But what's interesting is that mindset follows us into our career today, even if we don't realize it. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's good to kind of think about like, maybe what if I apply to that thinking to where I am now? Right?
1: right? Right. I mean, the thing is, I think I was afraid of not getting in anywhere. I remember I got into Boston College, which was the highest ranked school that I applied to. And I was dancing in the street with the envelope because I <laughs> just didn't think that it was possible. And I didn't want to yeah. experience so much rejection that I curtailed my the possibilities, you know, and so I applied to law school, which I'm sure that we'll talk about later on. But when I applied to law school, I applied to 27 schools. And I applied up and down the rankings to schools that I had no business applying to based on my numbers. But I thought I'm not going to be the one to to say no to myself, like I'm going to let them say no to me, you know, and the fear of a rejection means nothing if I get into any one of these schools. Mm-hmm. And so it, that definitely evolved in time, but it, it took me a while to to understand that's what I had done um, when I applied to college.
0: Okay, so you ended up choosing to join Teach for America in Miami. How did you make the decision to do TFA?
1: Yeah, I when I was a junior in college, I got the opportunity to go to Ecuador to do an education policy fellowship. And it was direct service in the sense that I was working with a group of girls in this rural community in Ecuador, and it was policy focused because it was there was a little bit of lobbying going on with the town's mayor and the town's city government. And while I was there, I was really enjoying working with the girls and I thought, okay, like education is this sort of important Space where equality issues come up all the time. And I really like doing this and I think I could be good at this. And so when I got back to BU that fall, I thought, okay, well, I've heard a lot about TFA and it does seem like a good opportunity to test out whether teaching is for me. And I think it could get at these issues that I've been thinking about for my whole life in terms of equity. And so that's why I applied. And I thought, you know, either it'll be this, the start of my career, or it'll be a time where I can figure out what I want to do next while doing some good work. And so it was really easy to make the decision to apply. And then once I got it, I thought, yeah, I definitely want to do this and and figure out whether it's for
0: me. Yeah. Okay. And so there's that whole like you know what you expect out of something, and then <laughs> there's the the reality part. Yeah. Um, which yeah. I think both of us we were both similar in terms of what we were wanting to get out of that experience of teaching mm-hmm. in Miami, mm-hmm. but the reality is something different. And so Good. talk to us about you know, what that was like to crash and burn a little bit.
1: (laughs) That's a good way to put it. Yeah. So I, you know, we were placed in Miami and I remember thinking, okay, well, I'm going to go teach in Miami. There's going to be a bunch of Cuban kids, a lot of Spanish speaking kids. They're going to face similar issues that I did before I moved to Peabody, Massachusetts for high school. I was in school in Lynn and was unchallenged, you know, and I think the expectations were pretty low. And it was really a question of access to more challenging educational opportunities. And so I thought that as a teacher, those were going to be the issues that I was dealing with, that I had, that I was going to go in and all I needed was to have high expectations of my students and challenge them and they would have their educational needs met. And then (laughs) I got to Miami and I was assigned to teach intensive reading plus, which was for students that... We're really reading well below grade level, sometimes fourth and fifth grade grade level while being in the 10th grade. And so I, I got there and it was completely different from what I expected. And not only was it not meeting my expectations, but I also just didn't have the skill set to, to meet the kids where they were, to teach them how to read at a fourth grade reading level. Those were not, those were not, Things that I learned in my, you know, five-week crash course for Teach for America. And so, you know, I, there were a lot of lessons that came out of that. But the most important one, I think, is that I walked in there and I thought, okay, I don't know how to do this, but I can figure it out. Like, I have to write a new lesson plan every day. I'm, I'm, lear- I'm coming in and I'm learning, like, okay, that lesson plan didn't work. That lesson plan did work. And so what I was doing was going, in, going into the classroom, going and teaching the lesson. And, at the, and then at the end of the day, sort of debriefing with myself, writing a new lesson, like, really putting my nose to the ground and trying to just like brute force my way (laughs) into becoming a good teacher. And I wasn't talking to anybody. You know, I wasn't talking to the team. I, I would talk to the coach on occasion about what I was struggling with. I was talking to the assistant principal whenever she came around, but I wasn't seeking anybody else to sort of help me figure out how to become a better teacher and the teacher that my students need to be. So it wasn't until like October or November, I think like two or three months in that, that I came up for air and started to talk to people about what I was experiencing and what was going well and what wasn't. And that's when I realized like, Oh, I can't just figure this out myself. There's enough, there's not enough videos and trial and error in this early period that will get me to Become the teacher my students need. It's really talking to other teachers about what's working for them, collaborating with other teachers to think about the the curriculum, talking to the coaches and the assistant principal so that they can support me in the things that I really just have no idea how to do. And it wasn't until I reached out to other people and stopped trying to do it really all by myself that that I started to see some success. So yeah, I, I think Teacher America taught me that it was important to check my assumptions and understand the landscape before diving in and also to to check in with the other people also doing the work in order to collaborate on steps moving forward. It taught me that my hard work alone really wasn't enough.
0: Yeah. And I think like part of that is, I wonder how much of that was also you just putting a lot of pressure on yourself and feeling almost like shame around asking for help. I know that I've, I definitely felt like like that whole fake it till you'll make it pressure, right? right like, we, exactly. like, we better fake it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Teach for America had these partnerships with these schools. And there was already a lot of, you know, criticism around Teach for America, why the program should exist. We obviously a lot of, you know, core members did not come from the same backgrounds as our students. And so it was a tricky space to navigate, I think, to feel like, how do you quickly ramp up as a teacher? How do you build relationships? Mm -hmm. And then how do you also cope with a somewhat traumatic, you know, new environment that was very challenging physically, you know, emotionally, and in so many ways for our students? And then we know that reverberated off of us too,
1: right? In my current job, I realized where I had room for improvement very early on, and I kept thinking about how I needed to figure out how to address those things so that I could be successful in my job. I reached out to a friend within weeks who helped me strategize on how to prioritize my tasks and address the the issues that were coming up. And I I, I remember thinking. If I had the presence of mind when I was a teacher early on in my career to recognize that I wasn't doing well and that I needed to reach out to somebody else, the whole first year of teaching would have been significantly easier, you know, Mm -hmm. whereas now I know that My feelings of failure, especially when I'm first doing something, when I'm doing it for the first time, when I have no experience in it, is completely normal. And I don't feel any shame about going to someone that is more experienced to help me figure it out. Totally.
0: Yeah. Honestly, we could do a whole episode on what we learned from those two years because there was just so much to grapple with in in such a short amount of time. And I do feel like it was like I grew so much professionally in that time and and as a leader, right? Like moving forward. Right. Okay, and so as you were wrapping up your two years, were you thinking about applying to law school? What did you end up doing instead?
1: Yeah. So when I left the classroom, I moved back to Boston and I started working at a nonprofit called Career Collaborative. And Career Collaborative is this small 14-person nonprofit in Boston with the mission of helping people find and see- and maintain good-paying jobs. And so I've always been interested in in issues of equity, like I mentioned. And so I saw education as one entry point and employment, good, stable employment as the other. And so it made sense for me to transition that way because a lot of the students that I taught in the classroom were, were students that didn't go to college. And that still had plenty of potential and really at some point just needed somebody to connect them to to opportunities. And so I joined Career Collaborative. And while I was there, I was coaching the people that had already secured jobs to keep those jobs for two years. And in the process of coaching, I learned a lot about conflict resolution, a lot about a, a number of different industries in Boston and services that I refer people to this day. I also, um, experienced what it was like to have a really good boss invest a lot of time in developing me and, and learned a lot about how to navigate the workforce. And so it was really formative and it also gave me the time to, to, prepared to apply to law school and to take the LSAT and submit my applications. And that's that was sort of the interim period between TFA and, and law school.
0: Yeah. And so I know that during this time, you were definitely strategizing around applying to law school. And I think that period of time can be tricky because mm-hmm. you're like, well, how quickly do I apply? Do yeah. I try to do this in a year? Do I try to do this in two years? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of tough because... You know, the LSAT right. can really hold people back in yeah. trying to get a certain score. So, how did you strategize that timeline and, like, mm-hmm. how hard was it?
1: It was very hard. It, I would say that it was the time that I was most insecure in my young career. It was a really stressful time. And the reason for that was because I was convinced that I needed to get a certain score. And so I would study and the test would be coming up and I would take a practice test and I wouldn't be at that number. And so I would, I would cancel the test and not take it and, and go to the next administration. And so for a year and a half, I was postponing taking the test because I was terrified of it. And you know, the turning point was that I took a course called, um, Testmasters and Testmasters has every logic game, which is one of the sections on the LSAT. Every logic game since 1990 is provided to you through the test prep course, and I had done every single logic game since 1990 twice. Oh my god! <laughs> and I was in the middle of studying or taking maybe like a practice test, and and I had a lot. Of, I had a hard time taking logic games because you're supposed to figure out the puzzle to an extent and then get to the questions. And I was trying to figure out the puzzle for too long. And I would run out of time, and so it wasn't until I had this moment that I was that I thought to myself, "Carol, you have taken every, (laughs) you've practiced every logic game question that there has ever been twice. Like you can do this. You don't need to think. You don't need to second guess yourself in thinking that you haven't figured out the puzzle enough before you get to the questions." And so it wasn't until i it wasn't until i had that realization that i was ready <laughs> that i finally started taking that i finally started doing logic games faster because i just had more confidence in myself and it literally was a process of doing the work but also convincing myself that i had the skills to do it and so it's, it was a really hard time. It was just a process where it was just me. There was no external pressure where somebody said you had to take the test by a certain date. Like there was always another test I could always apply for during a different administration. And, and there was also the fact that for years, for my entire life up until that point, I really thought that someday I would go to law school. And so it just felt too big to fail. at and I it was I put an enormous amount of pressure on myself and I wish that I had just taken it and uh, taken it early and maybe done badly and then I could have taken it again with less fear and probably finished the whole thing in six months or less and so I so what ended up happening is that I took the LSAT in June of 2015 as I was taking it I was like freaking out (laughs) And I knew that I was going to cancel the score because I just wasn't in the presence of mind to to perform well. And so I took it. I immediately canceled the score. And then I studied and told myself I would take it in December. And that's what I did. And I took it in December. And I sent my applications in January of 2016. And that was that. And it was done. (laughs) But it was a long process. I decided to apply to law school in June of 2014. And I applied in January of 2016. So it was a year and a half long mental battle where I didn't have the confidence to take the LSAT. And once I took it, it was easy to apply, but it was a long mental game.
0: Yeah, I relate so much to what you're saying. I had a similar, like a year long battle with the GMAT, and it really takes a psychological toll on you because it's not just like learning the content, like you were saying, right? Like a lot of it's just like the time pressure and then yeah. the testing environment pressure. And, and then, of course, like you said, like this dream, like this huge dream that you feel <laughs> like is riding on your this performance that you have during this like time frame. It really can be almost enough for someone to say, I'm not going to do this, right? Or to to cancel or or to continue to postpone. But there is definitely a a moment of courage at some point that you just have to, you know, lean into and you need to, you know, almost talk to yourself and say, like, we're going to do this. (laughs) Even if it feels awful, we're still going to do this, right?
1: I think the other thing is that I had to believe that no matter what happened, I would be okay. Right. I think when I was applying to college and like in the classroom, there were so many moments where I thought, I have to do this well, or it's the end of the world, or I have to do this well, or this really bad thing will happen. And those bad things never materialized. Right. I was okay no matter what happened. And so I think through teaching and through navigating any number of hard experiences, I realized that no matter what happened, even if I didn't go to law school, even if the worst thing, even if it was the worst result, things were going to be okay. And so I think it's confidence built up over a long period of time that allowed me to finally take that courageous step.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I think what you're talking about a little bit is almost like the survival mode that we have been in since we're young, like mm-hmm. sur- surviving and doing well, and almost like this need to prove ourselves to others. Right. A lot of it is this fear of, well, what happens if I don't if I don't achieve X or Y, right? Right. Um, And then there's a point where you kind of have to transition out of survival mode and we can't be in that mode anymore.
1: Right, right.
0: Yeah. Okay. So then fast forward us to the day that you found out that you got into maybe like your first law school. And like, what was it like to hear from 27 law schools?
1: (laughs) So I heard from a school that gave me a full ride. That was my first acceptance. (laughs) And that day, I remember that I thought I could be a lawyer. (laughs) And I think before that, I didn't think it was possible. Right? It was like, it was almost like applying to college again like when I got my first college acceptance I was like wow I can go to college (laughs) and I hadn't believed that before I received that validation from a school and so when I got my first law school acceptance I thought wow not only can I go but I can go for free because of the scholarship and I'm gonna be a lawyer it's gonna happen and so that was really validating there were still you know 26 other applications out to really competitive schools and so I was nervous. And like I mentioned before, I had underplayed my hand when I was applying to college. So in some ways I overplayed it for law school, but I was just convinced that I had a profile that a school would find interesting and that I had a lot to offer and that I belonged in law school. Or that's what I told myself anyway. I don't know if I believed it, but yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> Uh, That's what I convinced myself of in submitting all of those applications. And so for three or four months, I received acceptances, some really great uh, financial aid packages. And sometime in maybe March, I got into BU, which has a really solid law school, and they gave me a lot of money (laughs) as they had an undergrad And I thought, okay, well, this is great. I want to be a lawyer in Boston, and BU is a great school in Boston, and so I'm going to BU. (laughs) Um, And there were still some applications out, and I was convinced that they were all going to be denials or rejections. And then sometime in April, I, I got an email from Columbia, and the email was from the email address... I still remember because it was very disorienting the email address was admit a d m i t at columbia.edu or maybe at law.columbia.edu and that's very disorienting because it says admit and so i was like is what like that mm-hmm. couldn't be right <laughs> and so i opened this email and it's this very congratulatory body and it says please see attached and i open the letter and it says congratulations and i'm unable to process the words. (laughs) And and that was the day I got into Columbia. And I thought at the time, okay, that's what it was for. You know, that that's what the 27 applications were for. I knew that I would fit the profile at a school that would give me the skills to become the lawyer that I want to be. And I if I had applied in a safe way or if I had applied to the schools that I in my mind thought I could fit the profile for, I never would have applied to Columbia, but it turned out that the Columbia was the school that was meant for me. And so I just I I was really proud of myself, not for getting necessarily into Columbia, but for putting myself in the vulnerable position to apply to all these schools that conventionalism would suggest I should not have. Totally. And
0: I'm sure that was a really emotionally charged day for you.
1: Oh yeah, yeah! It was really exciting. I was in disbelief. It felt like uh, a lifetime's worth of work was validated. Of course, you know, getting into a school should not be the end all be all, but there are certain moments that give you access, and I don't think I don't think we can deny that certain credentials open doors. And so, for me, it was similar to what you said earlier. Like I've been scrapping by and figuring things out for so long by myself. And when I got into Columbia, it felt like, okay, now there's going to be this entire institution that's going to help me figure things out from here on out. Like they have an alumni network and and the career services office that's going to dedicate their time to me doing well. And that's exactly what happened. And so it just felt like I was no longer going to have to figure things out myself. It felt like there was going to be a significant institution behind me too.
0: Yeah. And you know, both of our parents are not from the US. And I I think we've talked about this before, where sometimes we share our accomplishments with them. Mm -hmm. And they don't always quite get it, right? Like, they're they're like, that sounds great. But like, what was that like for you? Like telling your mom? And like, (laughs) what was that like?
1: Well, yeah, that's interesting. So I think It is true that it's hard sometimes to share information if they don't have the same understanding of how the system works, right? And the law in particular is just so arcane in the random rules that there are. And so what I had done when I first applied is I gave her a list of all the schools that I applied to and I ranked them in order of like, I would really love to go here. (laughs) And so when I would get into a school, she'd see like, oh, okay, that's like lower in her list. Or when I got into some other schools, like, oh, that's higher. Like, that's great. Like, she's pretty happy about that. And so when I got the letter from Columbia, I called her and I told her like, it's, it's Columbia, it's this on my list. And she like immediately understood how happy I was because it was pretty high on my list. And so I find that some, that it does take some extra effort sometimes to explain to our parents what certain things mean to us, but law school is so important to me that I I developed this system to help her understand, you know, what each school would mean to me. And and so when I did tell her, she was ecstatic because she got it, you know, and we got to share that, which was really important to me and i still think of it fondly i still remember the feeling i still remember that i was across the street in the park from across the street from where i worked at the time and i was like pacing and, and talking to her and then i had to go back to work so it was nice and and you know we can't do that with all things I, I don't think but i think with the things that really matter we can figure out how to bring our parents in so that they can share in our joy
0: Thank you so much for listening today. Make sure you head over to ecmpodcast.com slash free course and sign up for my free job search training course. I teach you the three things that you need to know before you go into a job search process. My goal is to help you change careers with confidence and ease so you can move on with your life. I'll see you next week.